We read scripture this morning from Matthew 19. We turn to Matthew chapter 19. We take our text from verse 14. We read the entire chapter. We hear the inspired, infallible word of our Lord. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coasts of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement, and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. His disciples say unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. But he said unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Then were there brought unto him little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Suffer, little children, and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed thence. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man said unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go, sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were exceeding amazed, 
saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then answered Peter and said to him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And every one that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated, our text is found in verse 14. But Jesus said, Suffer little children, and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask ourselves this question this morning. What is God's attitude toward children? Is the child a part of God's family? Or does God only receive into his family those who give a reasonable confession of faith as they get to years of maturity? Does an infant become a member of God's family without any kind of conscious faith or credible confession? Is there such a thing that every child, perhaps, is part of God's family then? The passage here in Matthew, also recorded in Mark 10 and in Luke 18, provides answers to these questions. Crowds were coming to Jesus here in our text, and they were bringing to him infant children. The disciples saw this, and they rebuked the parents. Jesus was too busy. He didn't have time for these little babies. Jesus corrects the disciples, and he assures them, children indeed have a place within the family and the kingdom of God. And Jesus then gives some solid instruction here to parents, especially to parents regarding their responsibilities toward their children. And we look at that this morning. Suffer the little children to come. Noting the sin of the disciples, the rebuke that Jesus had to administer, and the blessing. The context here records that Jesus is speaking to those who are trusting in themselves and believing themselves to be self-righteous. That's who the Pharisees were. And that's the context of Jesus' instruction during this time period of his ministry. Many were coming to him who were puffed up in pride. They believed that they had a right to the kingdom. They had done things that others had not done. And therefore, they were more honorable. They were to be more highly regarded than others. They were boasting in their own righteousness by which they seemingly had earned a place then in God's kingdom. And even among the disciples there was this dispute as is evident from Peter himself. Peter saying, Jesus, look what we did. We left everything to follow you. What did we get? There was this pride, this idea that our works have satisfied some requirements now to make us more worthy than others. Jesus confronts that self-righteousness in one of the most powerful ways imaginable. He shows them that even a little child 
who has done nothing to earn any place in Jesus' kingdom has a place and is able to be saved. Contrary to all the claims of the Pharisees and all their self-righteousness and all their rules and regulations that they had established, Jesus says, these little children have a part in the kingdom of God. These little children who have done nothing, who've earned nothing, have accomplished nothing. And Jesus then even goes a step further in the other parallel accounts to point to those little children as a pattern for salvation. The salvation of even grown men and women. Except ye receive the kingdom as a little child, ye cannot be saved. Now how is this possible? It's important for us to understand what Jesus is talking about here. And we ask this question too, is it, is it the case then that Jesus here is teaching that all infants are innocent because they've not committed some sin and therefore all infants then will go to heaven if they would die in infancy? We'll see that that's not what Jesus here is teaching. How do we understand then this instruction? The Bible views children as conceived and born in sin and by nature then totally depraved. It's important for us to understand and confess. There is no place in the Bible where infants are presented as innocent, as though that infant now has a right to heaven because that infant has escaped original guilt, original pollution. Every child is conceived and born in sin. They're guilty by virtue of that original sin that they inherited from Adam and Eve. Adam sinned, and through Adam's sin, the whole human race was cast into guilt and pollution. A corrupt stock produces a corrupt offspring. There's no possibility that Adam and Eve, sinners as they were, could produce children that in turn would be perfect or that would be without sin. Our confessions teach this clearly. The Canons of Dort and the Third and Fourth Head and Article 2 teach, hence all the posterity, that is all of the descendants of Adam, Christ only accepted, have derived corruption from their original parent. Not by imitation, as the Pelagians of old asserted, but by the propagation of a vicious nature. That sinful nature is passed on to our children. And that's humbling for us as parents. There's no chance of salvation for any child, any man, any woman, apart from a wonder of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Psalm 51.5 talks about the fact that all are conceived and born in sin. Isaiah 53 verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. So that already at birth, and even prior to birth, after conception, all infants deserve hell because of the sin of Adam, which was passed on to them. Again, humbling that is, that every single infant is guilty of the original guilt and the original pollution, even apart from any actual sins they would ever commit. It's not merely the fact that we are corrupt because we sin. We sin because we are corrupt. And that's the tragedy of the human race. The Pelagian, whom the canons there 
contradict and speak against, insisted that men are born neutral. Babies are neutral at birth. And the only corruption that would come would be by their imitating bad sins and actions of others and therefore their sinfulness is by virtue of their imitation. The scriptures say no. Their sinfulness is due to the fact that they have a corrupt nature. Apart from Jesus Christ, there's no hope of salvation. So corrupt is that nature that that nature is incapable of doing any good. We call it totally depraved. It can't do anything good of its own. The only possibility of good is that Jehovah God would give life to those who are dead. And so we talk about, and the Bible speaks of the fact that apart from Christ, mankind is dead in trespasses and sins. Adam, as the legal head of the whole human race, polluted the entire human race. And fallen man remains man, but he no longer reflects God as Adam and Eve were able to do prior to the fall. The image of God, the holiness, the righteousness, the true knowledge is lost. And it can only be renewed by a wonder of God's grace. Dead in sin. And a dead person can do nothing. A dead person can't accept Jesus. A dead person can't do anything that would be pleasing in God's eyes. The only possibility of that one who's dead being saved is that God would work a wonder. That God would give life out of death. And that's the wonder of the gospel. Knowing that, as parents, we view our children then in a certain way. When our children sin, we need to admonish them. We need to correct them. We require of them repentance. We call them to repent and to turn from that sin. And we direct them to the only hope. And that's through Jesus Christ, who alone is able to forgive them their sin. Now what a joy that God does not leave us with the directive, Thou shalt surely die. That was the word that he spoke to Adam. The day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. But God gives hope. If that's all we knew about our children, we would despair. There'd be no hope of them obeying us. What sense would there be for us to sit down and teach them and read the scriptures to them and bring them to Christian schools and instruct them? We would have no assurance of fruit on our labors. A dead person is not going to be receptive to any of that instruction. But thanks be to God that through the darkness, the wonder of salvation shines in Jesus Christ. And that God gives to us His own Son who laid His life down for His beloved children. That God chose to save a people before they were even born. Before we had even done anything to make ourselves worthy. God ordained that he would set his love upon that people. That he would choose that people then, not half-heartedly and haphazardly, but he would choose them in their generations. And again, a marvelous wonder that God would save an individual, not only, but that God would save that one and then also incorporate his or her children into the wonder of God's covenant. So that salvation would be believers and their seed. Now as parents, as we stand before that wonder, we stand in awe. This is marvelous. There's something mysterious about this. Why would God so mercifully deal with me 
and with my children. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm not worthy. I know that I can't stand with the Pharisees and say, I deserve to have my children saved. I just look at my own actions. I look at my own example. I look at my own lust, my own sinfulness, and those pet sins that I battle every single day. And I'm consumed with guilt and with shame. I don't deserve to be saved, much less my children. And yet Jehovah God ordained that he would save to himself a people in their generations. Now here we have in this context the disciples with Jesus, and Jesus is busy. And in the busyness of Jesus' ministry, the disciples are of a mind to say, put the children aside. Jesus is too busy for them. And they're influenced by the Pharisees. In their mind, these children don't have a place in God's kingdom. They're merely infants. Jesus should not waste his time with those who don't even understand him, who can't even hear him. Jesus instead should focus on the multitudes. Go preach, go teach to those who can hear and those who are eager to receive your miracles. And so Jesus has a word of correction. He says, of such is the kingdom of heaven. The children of believing parents, though themselves by nature depraved and sinful, are at the same time, by a wonder of God's grace, received into his covenant and into his kingdom through regeneration and through the work of Jesus Christ. On the one hand, they sin continually. They're responsible before God for that sin. On the other hand, as they grow up, there's indication that there's a life that God has planted in Jesus Christ within them. And the result of that life is that there's a battle that takes place there. Though they sin, they hate their sin. They fight that sin. They don't want to continue in that sin. And they struggle daily to be that perfect man of God, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. They see a need for Christ. Our children then need the sign of the covenant. And that's what the scriptures teach us. Baptism as the sprinkling of water pointing to Christ receiving into his kingdom and covenant even infants, whose sins have been washed away through his precious blood. And as we grow older, we look back. When we fall into sin, as the baptism form speaks, we look back to our baptism and we're reminded, I'm a child of the king. My sins are forgiven, and though there's guilt, there's shame, I know the wonder of wonders that Jesus Christ laid his life down in my place. And just as that water was sprinkled on me, and just as water cleanses from the dirtiness and the filth of earthly corruption, so that spiritual wonder of Christ's blood has cleansed me from my sin. Now there are many ways in which we can be guilty of falling into the same sin of the disciples here. And we must be careful there not to rise up in pride. Easy it is to rise up against, for instance, the Baptists who insists that children cannot be incorporated into God's covenant or kingdom until they're older, until they make a credible profession of faith. That the sacrament will not be administered until they give evidence of that in their later years. We insist that we would never withhold the sacrament from our children like the Baptists do. But at the same time, 
How can we become guilty of this sin? There are other ways, beloved, and we need to look at our own selves and examine our own hearts. Suffer the little children to come unto me, Jesus says. Forbid them not. Sometimes we desire to enter into marriage, but we don't have any desire for a family. As a young couple, we run contrary then to this explicit rebuke of Jesus. No one may enter into marriage who is not willing also to receive children from Jesus Christ. Suffer the little children to come to me. Forbid them not. Don't keep them away. Don't do what you can in order to keep them from being born. Don't oppose Christ. So many in our day actively labor so that they will not have children to present to Jesus. They want the blessing of marriage, but they don't want the responsibility of children. But also, we would ask this, where is Jesus present in the world in which we live? Through the preaching of the gospel, in worship, Christ speaks. Christ is present through his word and by his spirit in worship. When we take our children out of worship, when we refuse to bring our children to church, so that our children are not under the preaching, they're not being taught, they're not being instructed, this word of Christ is being violated. Our children need to hear Christ, and they need to hear Christ as Christ speaks to them by his word and by his spirit, and as that word is applied to them through the preaching of the gospel. When we present our children for baptism, perhaps, but then we don't take seriously the calling to bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We don't discipline them when they sin. We don't correct them. We don't instruct and teach them as we ought. Jesus says, suffer the little children to come to me. You need to be teaching them about Christ. You need to be setting before them the reality of their sin not only, but also the wonder of salvation in Jesus Christ. Bring the word to them. See to it that they grow in their knowledge of catechism instruction. See to it that they are taught and instructed in the fear and honor of Jehovah. As Christ then is applied to them according to their individual ability as they grow and as they increase in years. And so, beloved, we hear the rebuke here that Jesus brings. Suffer the little children to come to me. Little children. Jesus here is speaking of small children. He's speaking of children of believers. Children who could not come in their own ability, but their believing parents now are bringing them to Jesus. Literally, the idea here is that these children are being brought to Jesus. They're being carried to Jesus. They're being presented to Jesus by whom? We would say here Jewish parents. Jewish parents who believed the promises that God gave to Abraham. And these parents now are bringing their children to Jesus with the view that Jesus blessed them, that he lay his hands on them. These parents are doing it because they understand that their children need Jesus. Now, while we can't critique the motives of all the parents that were involved, we do conclude from Jesus' response that the motive likely was good. These parents were believing parents who understood that their children needed salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. 
How much they understood of all of that and the types and shadows, of course, is not known. But these were not Samaritans. These were not Gentiles. These were not Pharisees who were coming to Jesus with their children. These were parents who understood their own spiritual need, their own depravity, as well as the depravity that's passed on now to their children. They're parents who understand. There's no hope for them, and there's no hope for their children apart from Jesus Christ. And beloved, now with a full revelation of Scripture, how much more that applies to us. This morning we witnessed Mr. and Mrs. Zanstra presenting little Wendy in obedience to Jesus Christ. Jesus demands this of covenant parents. Forbid it not. But we understand baptism is only part of it. There's so much more now that's required of us also as parents. As parents, constantly, we're bringing our children to Christ. These parents, note too, were persisting in their desire. They were not easily dissuaded. That comes out especially in the account of Luke, where Luke, in Luke 18, verses 15 to 17, is giving an account of this situation. The words that he uses has to do with persistence that the parents were being deterred by maybe one disciple first talked to them, but they kept going again. And then another disciple tried to deter them, and they kept going. They were persisting in this desire. They were not going to give in to the disciples in forbidding them. These parents, again, giving indication. They knew the Old Testament promises that God establishes His covenant in the line of generations. That God calls believing parents to teach their children and to baptize and to give them the sacrament. And so, beloved, as covenant people of God, we receive our children as gifts, as an heritage from the Lord. And when we bring our children to God, we reflect the spirit that these parents gave evidence of. We do so in connection with God's promise. God's promise in Genesis 17, verse 7. I will establish my covenant with thee and with thy seed after thee for an everlasting covenant to be a God to thee and to thy seed after thee. What a marvelous wonder that God has promised that he's not only my God, he's also the God of my seed. And so I desire now to bring my child to Christ. God spelled these blessings out more clearly throughout the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, showing that nothing had changed. Although... Now, instead of circumcision, baptism would be the sign of the covenant. In Acts 2, verse 39, Peter on Pentecost confirms the fact that God's covenant remains and God's promise to gather from among our seed remains. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. The promise is to believers in their generations as well as others that God will bring to conversion and then incorporate them in their generations. God also states astounding words then concerning the children of believers. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14, God says that they are sanctified, they are holy. How is God able to say that? about our children, knowing who our children are, that they're sinful, that they're corrupt as to their natures. God's people in this world are called 
Israel. They're called the church. And this people exists organically and develops in the line of generations of believers. We see that throughout the whole of the Bible in marvelous ways as the Old Testament Israelites kept track of their genealogies. And we see how God was saving to himself a people in the generations of that line. We see how God would take a Moabitish woman like Ruth and incorporate her in and then save her generations. Now the Bible calls these people God's people. They, with their children, are called the church, the holy congregation of Jesus Christ, God's covenant Israel. Believers with their children are called in the Old Testament and in the epistles saints in Jesus Christ. They're called beloved in the Lord. Now as such, then, they need to be addressed and treated. Our baptism form is very explicit in this regard. According to the form, our baptized children, though they are dead in sin and trespasses, are sanctified in Christ and are very really then in God's covenant and God's kingdom. The church gives thanks through the prayer that we prayed that the church has received forgiveness of sin and that we and our children are forgiven our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now again, that raises questions. How can we maintain this with regard to our children? Does this mean that all our children head for head then are saved? Are they all included? Does it mean that all the sins of everyone who's baptized are all covered through the blood of Jesus Christ? That they're all engrafted into Christ? And if that's not the case, shouldn't we change our baptism form? Beloved, the answers to that come from this. Our form is using the wording of Scripture regarding the organism of Israel, the organism of God's people. That language is found in the Old and New Testaments, especially it's found in Romans 9 and in John 15, where the Bible there is viewing the body of Israel and the church as a great vine, a great tree that's growing up. Christ is her root, and she's growing out of Christ. Now, included in that tree are branches that don't bear fruit, branches that are dead. God is the husbandman, and God is constantly then pruning the branches. He's cutting off the dead branches and casting them away. At any given time, there are branches in that tree that need to be cut off. And so constantly, God is at work. God is using various means, but he's using discipline, he's using admonition to cut off those branches. He's also bringing new branches in through a marvelous wonder of his grace, through conversion and through the wonder of his work as he sounds forth the gospel throughout all of the world and he brings individuals into the knowledge of their salvation and incorporates them into his glorious kingdom. So this tree is representing God's covenant on earth as it's manifest in the church. The tree represents the sphere of the covenant. The church is viewed then according to her spiritual essence in Christ. Christ is her root. She's growing out of Christ and she's abounding then in works that are pleasing to God and to his glory. 
as the church is viewed as the body of Christ, those who are sanctified, those who are elect, she's viewed according to her spiritual essence, not according to the corrupt dead branches. Yes, there are dead branches. Yes, there's that that must be pruned, but that's not the identity of the church. She's a living organism in Jesus Christ. And she's viewed then as the sphere of the covenant, even though not every individual member in the church at any given time is going to be a part of God's eternal kingdom and covenant. All that are Israel are not Israel. Yet, they were called Israel. And so we make a few conclusions then on that basis. God will separate those who are truly of Israel and those who are not. And he will do so through temptations, through trials, through Christian discipline. He will do so through death and judgment, finally. He will do so by quickening some and bringing them into an enjoyment of their salvation and hardening others in order that they put themselves out. No one may draw the conclusion from all this that all the children who are born in the church, who are in the sphere of the covenant, are also all children of the promise. Some are not. The Bible's clear. There are Esau's along with the Jacob's. There are Cain's along with the Abel's. But at the same time, we view the church and we view then our children not from the viewpoint of the dead branches, but we view them from the perspective of the true vine that God will continue in our generations by a wonder of his grace. And so we can say yes to the question of baptism because we're speaking of our children in terms of the promise. We're speaking of our children in terms of those who are the true children of God. Now we don't know which ones and who are necessarily. But we know the promise. And the promise of God is that I will be a God unto you and to your seed. And we lay hold on that promise. And we view our children then from the viewpoint of that gracious promise of God. That God will gather his seed from among our seed. And so the apostles, Jesus himself, addressed then the church, including her children, as beloved, as elect according to the grace of God, as saints, as those who had pure minds, as those who have pure hearts. Doing so now from an organic perspective, not head for head, but viewing the church as the body of Jesus Christ, found in Christ. And similarly, we don't view the congregation as a mixed group. We view the congregation as beloved. And that doesn't in any way remove the warning. It doesn't in any way remove the necessity of admonition and discipline where it needs to be administered. But it makes all of those the more urgent. This is the church of Jesus Christ. You are called now to live in holiness, to pursue his will, and to live as those who are bringing forth the fruit of godliness and holiness in your lives. And God uses the means of the preaching, repentance, admonition, to either harden or to quicken and to cause repentance and true sorrow. We must not forget then, beloved, that our children are not merely many individuals placed in random in the history of God's creation. God chose to himself an organic 
line of the covenant in which he would place those children as children of the promise. God did that to us for the most part. What a marvelous wonder that God put us in families where we had parents who loved the Lord, who taught us the things of God's kingdom. And that God now in turn gives us children whom we can teach those same truths of God's word. We can even confess this wonder. There was only one place where God would put us according to his marvelous providence. Only one place where each of our children would fit according to his marvelous design. And that place in the organic line of the household of believing parents. The Lord saw fit, according to his eternal counsel, to call elect believing parents and now to use them for the spiritual upbringing of his own beloved children. Those whom he gave to Christ, whom he had chosen from eternity. As the seed now of Abraham. And then to use parents as instruments in his hand to continue the well-being of the church. To teach that seed the truth in order that they in turn train up their children who in turn will train up their children until Christ comes back. And so there are special privileges, spiritual pleasures, as well as weighty responsibilities for us and for all our children as we live in that organic line of God's covenant promise. Jesus does not assert every one of the children are members of his kingdom. Jesus says, of such is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven consists in part of the children of believers. Children of believers must be given the sacrament. They must be baptized. They must be taken into the membership of the church. Our children must be viewed as those who are in the sphere of the covenant and the church of Jesus Christ. And the whole then is not named after the carnal remnant, after the branches that we pruned off, but the whole is named after the elect, the promise. And so our children then must receive training in the home. They must receive an education that is in line with the promise that we make at baptism to be brought up according to the doctrines of God's word as confessed in his church and in the confessions. And we then view our children in terms of those who are the true children of God. Those who don't belong to us, they belong to God. And the weighty responsibility then of the fact that God determined that he would take his beloved elect children chosen from before eternity and place them now in our homes in order that we might be used by him for their upbringing and for their training. Covenant parents then receive their children as gifts from the Lord. Old Testament parents, especially the women, receive their children from God and acknowledge that. We read of abundant thanksgivings that were offered after God gave them children. And we could quote all kinds of passages. Think of Eve, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Genesis 4 verse 1. Think of Leah, now will I praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah in Genesis 
29, verse 35. Hannah, my heart rejoiceth in the Lord, because I rejoice in thy salvation. 1 Samuel 2, verse 1. Think of Psalm 127, verse 3. That children are an heritage of the Lord, a gift from God. Think of Hannah there. That's striking, Hannah's comment. My heart rejoiceth in the Lord, because I rejoice in thy salvation. Hannah saw salvation in the birth of her son. A salvation that she and her son would enjoy. Now, how is it that she could see that? She saw salvation as the children of Israel before her saw it, as they confessed God's salvation. God taught them, your salvation is linked to the children that God would give you. And God did that in connection with especially the coming of the Messiah, that God would bring about the Messiah through whom they would be able to know the wonder of salvation. And God taught them then that his purpose was tied up, not just with them, but also with their seed. That God wasn't dealing with them just as a group of individuals, but he was dealing with them as a line. That organic unity perpetuates itself, not just by believers bringing forth children, God working that wonder of conception, but also those believing parents now faithfully instructing that seed in the doctrines of salvation. And so this people of God, all through history, had that promise, the promise of a Savior, the promise of the resurrection of the dead, of life everlasting. Parents didn't always clearly see the elements of that promise, because their vision was in types, it was in shadows, it was limited. But they looked for the salvation, not only for themselves, but also for their children. And they looked for the one who would ultimately bring forth Christ, who would accomplish that wonder. And that's why God's commandments and God's law then was so important. In Deuteronomy 4 verse 10, Gather me the people together, and I will make them hear my words that they may learn to fear me all the days they shall live upon the earth and that they may teach their children. And that emphasis we find through Scripture. What happened to Israel when they didn't teach their children? Generations were cut off. God raised up new generations now who taught their children. This was why God's law was so prominent. And the beautiful idea, not that that law was the way to get saved, but that that law was the expression of gratitude. It was the expression of thankfulness that their children would grow up as thankful children acknowledging Jehovah as their God and living before his face forever in holiness. Now, beloved, what was true of God's people in history is all the much more true for us. We now have the reality. We have Jesus Christ crucified, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven. We have the spirit of Jesus Christ poured out in our hearts by a wonder of his grace. We receive then our children as gifts from God to train and to prepare for their place in God's kingdom. And we acknowledge the weighty responsibility that God placed upon us. We have a broader perspective even than that as we see God's plan of salvation being realized through us and our children. The white horse is running and God is accomplishing the wonder of salvation. And so while we're busy in missions and we're called to be busy in missions, we realize that we must be busy in missions, but we also must realize God's work of grace in our own homes 
and in our own families. And so our goal with regard to our children is not focused, first of all, on this life. It's focused on this wonder. We will live with our children before the face of God to all eternity. Marvelous! It's focused on the wonder of the eternal character of God's covenant. And again and again, that was the perspective that God impressed upon Abraham and Jacob and David. My covenant is an eternal covenant with you and with your children. Don't just be focused on the temporary here and now. Yes, it's important that your children learn how to tie their shoes and get potty trained and all the rest. But the spiritual, that's where the focus is. Because these are children that will live with you to all eternity in the enjoyment of God's covenant and kingdom. And so we teach our children to look for that full realization. We with our children pursue the graces and the mercies of God. We hold before our children holiness and godliness as those who will live before the face of Jehovah God in the wonder of the bliss of their Savior and His work on their behalf. And God ordains covenant instruction, discipline in the home as means of assisting us in that training. And so God, from the beginning of time, ordained that covenant parents who in weakness and in sin would be given children would teach those children diligently to the utmost of their power for the glory of God in order that many sons and daughters would be brought to glory. What a privilege, beloved. And that's the privilege before which we stand. And we lay hold then on God's promise. Never can we be too much in prayer, realizing our own weakness, realizing the struggles that our children face, realizing the battle against their own sinful natures. We cling to God's promise. God has promised it. Now realize it in the lives of our children by the wonder of thy grace. Of such is the kingdom of heaven. That's the blessing of our text. Knowing who our children are, as we know, lays a burden then on us as parents and on us as a church of Jesus Christ. The eyes of the disciples were on the parents. But notice, where were Jesus' eyes? On the children. That's so striking. The disciples are rebuking the parents. Jesus is addressing his words to the children. Suffer. Allow these little ones to come to me. And the basis of Jesus' instruction, again, of such is the kingdom of heaven. These children have a place in my kingdom. Even though we as parents confess that our children are sinful, depraved by nature, that they're not neutral, that they're evil. And we learn from that. We don't stick up for our children as though they're always going to be correct. We don't always assume their motives are going to be right. We don't assume that they're always going to be telling the truth. The devil's a liar and the devil's at work in their sinful natures. We know ourselves, we know our own struggles, and we know they're the product of our own natures. And we know the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. If those sins were present in us, how much more they're going to be present in them. And we realize the age in which we're living, sin being so much more prominent, how much more challenging even it will be for our children to live that spiritual battle. They're going to rebel. They're going to follow after the ways of sin. They need firm discipline, sharp rebuke. They need 
above all Christ. And we view them then as new creatures in Jesus Christ. As parents, we can't make them receptive. God needs to work in their heart, that obedience. We bring them to Christ in the confidence that Christ will work his wonder of grace in the hearts of our children. Now the infant then, unable to do any good works, is able to be the object of God's grace and God's salvation. And what Jesus here is teaching in the context here is that salvation is all of grace. The disciples are convicted by that. He deals with marriage and the permanence of marriage and the disciples are astounded. If that's how strict we need to maintain marriage, it's better that we don't marry. But Jesus points them to the wonder of God's grace. What's impossible of men is possible by God's grace. He points them to the fact that a rich man cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples say, how can that be then? How can anybody be saved? We're all rich. And Jesus again points them to what's impossible with men is possible with God. As parents, we bring our children to Christ. Now, we need to understand this morning what that means. What does it mean to bring our children to Christ? This is a very common instruction that Jesus gives. Again and again, we find it throughout Jesus' ministry. Matthew 11, verse 28. Matthew 16, verse 24. John 6, verse 44. Many, many admonitions we can find. First, we know that no one can come to Christ except the Father draw him. And that's the wonder of regeneration. We're by nature dead. But Jehovah God works the gift of life. And he works then that drawing. And he draws to himself. And that's John 6 verse 44. God is the one behind the parents who are bringing their children. God is the one who alone is able to work that desire in our hearts. We don't take any credit. We can't take any credit. God alone is the one who drew us who drew our parents, who drew our grandparents, our great-grandparents in our generations. And he's the only one then that is able to draw also our children to himself. In our text, there's a physical activity of coming to Jesus and there's a physical touch of Jesus. Now we acknowledge that no longer there is that physical reality for us. During the time of Jesus' ministry, that was present. But there's also on that basis, a spiritual coming. So that the physical is a picture of the spiritual. The disciples, the believers, saw Jesus' miraculous healing power. They saw the wonders he could do. And you children know that sometimes Jesus actually touched people. He touched their eyes, touched their ears, and he would heal them and make them better. Other times, Jesus wouldn't even touch them. He might even be a long ways away, and he would pray, and they would be healed miraculously by the wonder of his work. Jesus could reach his people without any kind of physical touch. And Jesus showed that then, the spiritual aspect here. Now, what does it mean, again, to come to Jesus? We don't go to Jerusalem. We don't go to heaven where Jesus now is. That's not the idea. We bring them to Christ by bringing them to see their need for Christ, to see their sin. We bring them God's word where Christ is prominent and present. We teach them the stories, the promises of God. We teach them to pray. We teach them to see their need, to look to Him. We teach them the reality of the spiritual struggle that they're in. 
We view them as those who are viewed by Romans 7. We don't view them as those who are unregenerate, wicked individuals who need to be yet converted. We view them as those who are God's children who now are wrestling and battling with the reality of the devil and temptation. And we recognize the old man and the new man and that battle that's taking place within the heart and life of our children. And so we approach it from that perspective. Confess your sins. Look to the Lord. Because of the power of sin and depravity, you need Christ. And when the guilt and the shame of sin threaten to overwhelm them, we point them to the cross. Jesus Christ, He laid down His life for you. He shed His blood to cover that guilt, that shame. And in Him there is the wonder of that forgiving mercy and that grace. To come to Jesus, beloved, is the spiritual activity of knowing Him, laying hold on Him for our salvation and for the spiritual blessings that are found alone in Him. It's an act of spiritual recognition of who Jesus is. That I'm empty, but He's full. And He is my fullness. And He's the one whom I need. That I'm a sinner. He's holy and righteous. And He's my Savior. That I realize... I've sinned against Him and I need forgiveness through Him. It's the spiritual activity of longing. We need a drink and we can't just turn away from the drinking fountain. We're thirsty. We need it. If someone says, oh, there's nothing available, we're going to continue to pursue it. We're not going to give up and say, okay, I guess I don't need a drink any longer. We're thirsty. We put in extra effort and time to accomplish getting that drink because there's a longing. By virtue of the wonder of God's work of grace, of regeneration in our hearts, there's a longing for Jesus Christ. We need Him. We can't live without Him. We need Him for the fullness of our salvation. We need Him, and we want to be thinking of Him far more than we do. And we look forward to the eternity of living with Him in the fullness of the wonder of the heavenly Jerusalem. And that spiritual then longing and that spiritual hungering and thirsting after Him shows itself in our embracing Him, cleaving Him to Him. We need Him. We can't live apart from His Word. We can't live apart from prayer. We surrender ourselves wholly to Him, acknowledging He's my Lord, and I am called now to live unto Him. And that's my joy. That's my privilege. I'm not my own. I belong to my faithful Savior. And now I live for Him. And His faithfulness is sure. And nothing, nothing can separate me from the wonder of his love we take him and we lay hold on him by the work of his grace in our hearts and he says I will establish my covenant between me and thee as an everlasting covenant I will be a God to you and we lay hold on that wonder and there's rest there's peace in that glorious truth it's not about me running it's not about me willing he's accomplished it all It's a wonder of grace. He's my shepherd. I'm his sheep. And I belong to him because he loved me from all eternity. And I'm constantly growing in my awareness and understanding of what it means to belong to Jesus Christ. This presupposes, beloved, that there's a knowledge of him before we come. And again, that God has worked that new life. That God has given the gift of faith. And that that faith is revealing itself in the works that are being produced in us by the power of His Spirit.
all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. None will be lost. That's the call of the gospel. We hear it in the preaching. That's the call that our children hear. And Jesus emphatically says, forbid them not. He not only says, come, he says, don't forbid them, don't refuse them, don't deny them. Don't just sit back and wait. Don't establish any kind of barriers. Bring them. Know the power of grace that I regenerate my children in infancy and I command you to bring them to me that they might know me. Now again, does that mean all of our children are his? No. Of such, of such is the kingdom of heaven. The of such is particular. Not all. We don't presume. We don't assume all. He wants us conscious that we are sinners. We don't deserve ourselves to be saved. We don't deserve that God would be obligated to save any of our children. This wonder depends on election and the precious gift of faith. We confess then, beloved, that like little Wendy, we're totally unable, we're totally unwilling of ourselves to come to Christ. How does Wendy come to Christ? She can't do anything. She's brought by her parents. The only possibility is that God would work a wonder of grace to draw her. And the only wonder that's possible for us similarly is that God would draw us. And that God would bring us to our knees and that he would bring us to know Christ and the wonder of salvation in him. And so we bring our children by faith, trusting God's promises. And note this wonder. Jesus takes them in his arms and he blesses them according to Mark 10, 16. The parents were just looking for Jesus to touch them. Jesus to bless them. Jesus goes way beyond what they would expect. He takes them in his own arms. He shed his own blood for us and for our children. And he carries us and our little ones. Now to all eternity. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, strengthen us by faith. And grant that we might walk humbly and thankfully before thy face. For Jesus' sake, amen. We turn to Psalter number 213. 213.